All of the newest episodes of Note to Self are now available on the Luminary Podcast app. It's free to download, and you can also listen to other podcasts from WNYC Studios, like Radiolab, Two Dope Queens, Snap Judgment, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin, and others. Luminary Premium is the only place where you can enjoy the entire new season of Note to Self, plus new original podcasts you won't find anywhere else, from Trevor Noah, Roxanne Gay, Guy Raz, Lena Dunham, and many more. And you can enjoy them ad-free. Start your free trial by going to luminary.link slash note to self or download the Luminary app for free. Listener supported. WNYC Studios. Hello, friends. It's Manoush, the host of Note to Self. Welcome to 2017. We are working hard on a mega project for you that is launching later this month. Meanwhile, here is a listener favorite, an encore of an episode that tackles what many of you may have just resolved to fix. Your health, your weight, or your fitness. One of those? Yeah, well, guess what? It turns out it's not as simple as just downloading an app and tracking your calories or steps. It never is, right? Okay, enjoy. And I'll see you next week with a brand new episode. Bye for now. This is the disaster of my life, I'll be honest. It just is. I've been wrestling on and off with my weight since I was a kid, and it's exhausting, and it's a continual source of anxiety and stress. It's Note to Self, the tech show about being human. I'm Anoush Samarodi. Hi, Note to Self team. Hey there. Hi. A couple weeks ago, we put out the call to you. What's been your experience with fitness trackers and calorie counting apps and all the things out there that we can download or wear to collect and compile information about our bodies? My name is Allison from Charlotte, and I use apps to quantify everything. I wanted to commiserate, share my story about the apps. So I've had a really interesting experience using all of these apps and devices and things. I'm a self-admitted data addict. Hundreds of you left us voice memos, and they were fascinating. So my company this year decided that they were going to give us a $25 gift card if we averaged 8,000 steps for the month of January. Um, I live in North Dakota where it's zero to 25 degrees any given day in January. And so I was like, well, screw that. I'm not even going to try. I never thought I would be the person walking around my kitchen island or doing laps in my bedroom because my friend Brittany is 2,000 steps ahead of me at 11 o'clock at night. In the pursuit of optimizing my life, I ended up becoming a prisoner. Oh, Evan, Christina, and Allison, thank you. So many Note to Self listeners with their experiences. Late night laps around the kitchen, imprisoned by data. Today, with the help of some experts, we sift through the tech, the obsessions, and the sometimes self-defeating data points. Do these gadgets and apps really lead us to six-pack abs and that ever-elusive good night's sleep? We're going to examine the deeper motivations behind getting healthier and whether the tech companies can help us do it without losing our minds. Lots of confessions here, including the guy you heard at the very beginning of the show, Paul, who said his food issues were the disaster of his life. The more humiliating addictions are really hard to confess, you know. 
like pretzels is a depressing addiction for an adult man in his 40s to have. Paul, by the way, is the writer and technologist Paul Ford. I sought him out for this episode because I knew that he had kind of a unique relationship with tracking eating and exercise habits. Five or six years ago, before Fitbits became standard wristwear and calorie counters took over people's home screens, he built his own tracker just for him. Paul was really ahead of his time, and his story illustrates what's happening and what could happen, both good and bad, as we go forward with these trackers. So I was programming a lot, and I wrote a little tool that would let me manage my weight. And what I would do is I would bike into the office. I was working at Harper's Magazine at the time, and I would track that I had biked. And then I would have a little breakfast, and I would track what I had eaten. And you would just select from a menu. I would add foods, and I would research the calorie count on each food. But there was more to Paul's homemade tracker than just calories and miles. His tracker was special. So I'd come in and I'd write, here's how I'm feeling. And I'd put a little picture in. And I made all the pictures black and white. And I made the whole thing look like an old receipt book from like the 20s. And I had a designer friend who totally got where I was going. And he's like, here, let me help you. And we made it really pretty. And so it would track up how much weight I was losing over the course of a month. And it would draw little charts. And sometimes you were up and sometimes you were down. But a narrative was emerging. And there was kind of a book about me coming out of it. And that was really nice. I liked that part a lot. Friends told him that data couldn't solve his problems. Fellow overweight folks told him he should just accept his body as it was. I had to push all that out of my head and make something that made sense to me. And what actually made sense was track the calories and tell a little story about your day. Paul figured out that he had to see his dieting story and that he had to rewrite what his body was and what it could be. It was like his own ultra-personalized dieting mission control center. And it worked. He lost weight, like serious weight. I went from someone where people were like kind of staring at me to somebody where like my friends would be, I don't even think you're fat anymore. That is not where Paul's story ends, unfortunately. But before we get to his next chapter, let's take a minute to stop and look at the whole health tracking industry more broadly. Right. Okay. So I'm Natasha Scholl. Natasha is a cultural anthropologist. She was a professor at MIT. Now she's at NYU. And I've been working for the last few years on a book I'm calling Keeping Track about self-tracking technology, its evolution, where it's going, and how this affects the state of self-regulation. Keeping Track, her new book, comes out later this year. But Natasha's also really well known for her previous research into how slot machines are designed to keep people coming back for more. And it is so interesting to hear how these two ideas about self-regulation and addiction relate. There's so many ways in which we're using screen technology and interactive technology to regulate ourselves today. The regulation I was talking about in the book on addiction and technology with slot machines was a kind of regulating yourself away, escaping yourself. Yeah. But what I noticed with the rise of Fitbit and so many of these new tracking technologies was self-regulation in a different direction. Not so much escape, but more how to be in touch with the self, how to better manage the self. It's almost the opposite. Natasha says different types of people use these tools in different ways. It's kind of like a spectrum. 
and the voice memos we got from you, dear listeners, and actually my own experience too, they really show just how wide that spectrum can be. Being able to log and track and quantify every bit of what I was eating and what I was doing is the only way I've been able to lose weight before. I went from almost 300 pounds now to beneath 190. I've always been a bit of a gadget nerd and I like kind of gamifying my life. And I, uh, I think that's what did it for me. You've definitely seen a sort of mass jumping on the bandwagon of the idea of self-tracking, counting everything from steps to calories to sleep. But I read a report that said that half of the people that buy these things give it up, and a third of them do it within the first six months that they have it. What do you think happens when you get one of these things? Well, one interpretation you could make is that people are having success with these devices and gadgets and apps, and then they're putting them aside because they no longer need them. But people often find that they look at the data and they're, they're a little bored, a little disappointed. They don't really learn anything or they see the problem, but they're not really fixing it and it's, the technology is not helping them to fix it. Ignoring the reminders becomes the habit instead of the healthy behaviors becoming the habit. My fitness tracker vibrates to tell me I haven't moved in a long time and I don't even feel it anymore. I was hoping that I would finally get the answer of why my sleep quality is so poor, but I ended up not learning much at all apart from how deep my sleep was at any given day. I can divide everyone who is disappointed with tracking technology into two camps and one camp just doesn't like the whole enterprise and is turned off by it and decides the whole act of self-attention in this way and looking at these numbers or graphs is just bad. It's undermining my sense of self and even self-awareness in the world, and I don't want to do it anymore. One day while putting on my Fitbit, I thought, does this spark joy? And the answer was no. So fast forward six months, I have no ugly device or screen on my wrist. I have no lights, no buzzes, no numbers. And then yesterday, my doctor told me that my blood pressure was the lowest it's ever been. My favorite genes fit, and I'm happier. And then others say they just complain about the technology as it exists today and seem to want it to improve. I have been keeping track of my own intake, shall we say, mm-hmm. in an effort to take in more protein. That was what I decided that, you know, didn't want to lose muscle mass, turned 40. And then and then I went on vacation to Cancun and it all goes up. And I haven't been quite able to get back on track since then. But so you're showing me about seven months here? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. It does seem to be going up and you have the narrative to put on that. You went on vacation, <laughs> yeah. so then it'll go down. I mean, what did did you hope from it? I don't know what I hoped. It just said, you're heavier, and then I want to argue with it. And I want to be like, yeah, but now I lift weights, and now I eat more protein, and so maybe, and then I go to my scale, and my scale tells me, you know, my fat percentage, which I guess is good, but I don't really know because maybe that's just my body type. Like, Mm -hmm. so I feel like it's all kind of in a vacuum. Okay. That was really important to hear because it sounds like you 
think this has value if only it was more precise, more tailored to you, more able to incorporate different streams of data. So you're still hopeful. I mean, I think you're still hopeful. I think also, though, and this is another question is like how I'm a good girl. Like I like to get a, you know, pat on the head uh, the days that I miss. Uh, it feels like I might get in tr- – like I don't know who my keeper is, but maybe it's the app. And um, I wanted to actually play for you, if we could, a voicemail that we have from one of our listeners. The hyper-awareness and being able to track everything and see everything and quantify everything brought on such an influx of information that it made me so obsessive that – Every single solitary meal I would sit down to became this, like, giant mental stress, like a battle. You know, how many proteins, fats, carbohydrates, how many grams of sugar, what is the sodium intake, what is this app going to tell me at the end of it? It opened up Pandora's box in in a negative way. Now, all of a sudden, I'm thinking, like, man, that salad dressing I put on, like, did I put on one teaspoon? Did I put on three teaspoons? Did I put on a tablespoon? Like, I wonder if they cooked my chicken with olive oil at this place. And the problem is, in the pursuit of optimizing my life, I ended up becoming a prisoner and hating my life. I actually got to what I wanted, got a six-pack, got to the weight. I wanted to hit and had no one to share it with because by that point I was like having to prepare meals at home and work out a certain number of days per week and make sure I was tracking it. And if I didn't, I felt like a failure and my phone would send me reminders. So what I do now is I just wake up and I do what I want to do and say fuck you (laughs) to everything else. And there's been no consequences at all. So I don't really know what that hyper-control and hyper-awareness ever brought me other than a massive uh, mental complex that I get to take with me for the the rest of my life. It sounds like for him it was isolating and actually kind of dangerous, you could say, that he went in that direction. I mean that's what's so interesting. We're just putting this stuff out there and for some people it really affects them. Anyone by the same token who puts a tracking device on may start to feel a little, you know, oh, I didn't make my 10,000 steps today. And even if they're not the kind of person that's going to get up and go and walk stairs until they make it before bed or like walk in circles in the kitchen, and I've heard these stories, they're still going to think about that, right? But isn't that a good thing? If they are 20 pounds overweight and they maybe are at risk of getting diabetes, isn't that great if it spurs them to put in the steps that make their life better? Some would say it's a recipe for disaster if taken too far because it just is a little punishing, right? Because I think you see across the board this increasing obsessive kind of self-attention that at the very least causes some anxiety. Oh, anxiety. There you are. Back again. The way started to come back on. And I, I feel a lot of it is just that I lost the ability to really get a grip on my anxiety. After the break, the chair that keeps you from eating too much. It could have been yours if you lived in the 17th century. And 
why Paul Ford gained back all the weight. We're back. I'm Anoush Zamarodi, and this is Note to Self's Quantified Body episode. Interesting fact, one of the first body tracking gadgets ever made goes back centuries. Our cultural anthropologist and quantified self-historian Natasha Shule showed me a picture of it. So that is the famous weighing chair uh, oh. of Sanctorius Sanctorius, the 16th, 17th century Croatian physician. So this is a chair he constructed, very precise chair that hung from the beams. And as he ate his dinner, so it was positioned in front of his table, it would record every precise little bit of intake and what was coming out. He also called it the excretion chair. So everything that went in and was excreted out because it was also a toilet. So as he, as he ate, it would lower down. And when he had had his fill enough, he couldn't reach the table anymore. So there was a built-in self-regulation there in the chair, right? The chair was doing a lot of the work. This chair took on quite a following, and it was sort of a geeky, it was the quantified self following of its time. Of where, the early 1700s. Yes, yes. So you had people writing letters and to each other about their particular techniques for using the chair, how they would string it up, refinements they made. And there was this story, a poor guy who sat in the chair three years and didn't get out because he was so obsessed. People called it an anxiety-inducing chair. This is the same question that we're talking about, right? Hmm. Anxiety-inducing apps and gadgets, I right? mean, you're reminding me of some very, like, we got voicemails that would say, I weigh myself, and then I'll go to the bathroom, and then I'll weigh myself again. For all of us, in some way, that danger is there of getting a little bit too obsessed with the numbers. And, you know, way back in the 1700s, six, late 1600s, people were saying, you know, the scale is taking away our agency. It's depriving us of the skills to regulate our own consumption. We're no longer dining by the clock or the table. We're dining by the chair. And you could say that of some of these apps uh, for some people. So that's on the individual level. Like if you take all these people who are feeling a little anxious, a little beholden to whatever their bodies are doing and collecting the information, what does that do to us as a culture then? What does that do to us on a bigger scale? Does it change our values? Does it change the way we act as communities? Well, it's interesting because I've done a lot of probing into historical precursors. And you can go back to the Stoics and read the kinds of journals and practices that people were as citizens expected to do at the end of the day. And some of it looks on the face of it very similar. Or even, you know, people always talk about Benjamin Franklin, one of our forefathers, one of the first trackers who had his little tablet and he was making checks and dots. But in each of these historical cases, there's also important differences, which is what the aim is. And is it part of being a citizen in the name of sort of truth and justice in some cases or salvation in the cases of monks. Huh. What is our purpose? I think that many people can articulate that for me, why they are doing this. Mm -hmm. Or if they can, it is to achieve certain benchmarks, to get a certain weight. And often they'll reach that weight 
the guy who just talked to us said, I got my six pack, but then he's left feeling a little bit empty. But isn't it like, I'm trying to think of it as Russian dolls. Like I'm the little self, uh, healthy self in the middle. And then as we unpack it, and because I'm this healthy little self, I don't put a strain on the system. I don't need my health insurance. I pay into it, but I never take back. Isn't that the idea that as we become a more healthy, more stable, more vital people, we improve everything for everyone. I mean, that sounds great to me. And I think that (laughs) if you're someone like that and that's why you're tracking and how you're tracking, you are engaged in what philosophers would call an ethical project. But it's not always the case that people are doing it that way. (laughs) And so I'm going home and pouring myself a vodka martini at night. Paul Ford wasn't pouring vodka, but he was eating a lot of pretzels. And then he wasn't. Remember, he built this beautifully designed database to keep his eating and exercising in check. And he lost over 90 pounds. So I got really into this thing. And I was able to give it time and resources and emotional energy. Now comes the sad part, though. Paul's weight loss was temporary. He stopped updating his tracker because, well, things got busy. What specifically happened is my wife became pregnant with twins. There was some like career stuff. I changed my job. My stress started to kind of mount that way. And then the kids showed up and the weight started to come back on. In other words, life is what happened to Paul and some of the hard stuff that comes with it. I lost the ability to really get a grip on my anxiety. And I lost those long stretches of time that you have when no one else is, is demanding a lot of your life to focus inward on myself. It sort of feels like a huge amount of the challenge that I face in life is just acknowledgement of the situation in which I find myself, like just fully accepting it, not panicking about it, not sitting there and trashing myself over it, not trying to destroy something or be angry with myself, but just going like, here's where it ended up, accepting that. Honestly, it's great. I have a loving home. I have tremendous career success. But, you know, obviously those are very hard things for me to accept. And I think one of the things that that tool that I built actually helped me do was accept that. Like I just, it was a portrait. It was a mirror of a physical reality that I was completely trying to deny. And it told me that you feel good when you ride your bike. It told me that you like to take pictures of the world. It told me that sausages of a certain kind have 140 calories. And it told me that I had lost or gained a pound. And that was the news I needed. You know, look, I'm out there, I'm watching people with their trackers, and I've seen in my own home and people around me, I've seen many Fitbits come and go. I think that if you are very motivated towards health and fitness and you take the time and you have the focus, those are wonderful tools. But I'm very suspicious, based on my own experience, of these as truly transformative objects. And they're well-intentioned, but I don't know where they're going to be five years from now. And I hope I'm wrong. Paul actually might be wrong because technologists, from what Natasha told me and all the research that I did, they are actually watching and listening to our complaints about fitness and calorie trackers very closely. I mean, they have to, right? To attract a wider customer base than the mostly well-off, educated, kind of neurotic folks who are currently the biggest users of these devices and apps, 
these technologists have to change how they work. They have to account for different motivations, not just pander to type A personalities. And so to make these things easier, not only to use, but transform the data into meaningful information, into stories like Paul did, stories about ourselves that we can understand. So how would they do this? Well, maybe for people who get too obsessive about their weight, there might be scales that just tell you you're on track instead of giving you a number. Maybe they just buzz to let you know it's it's all okay. Maybe you went up or down a pound, but it's all good. For people who need more of like a mother figure in their life, someone to really hold their hand, a weight loss app would like check in with you. It would maybe let you know that today is a good day to have a scoop of ice cream. Things are going well. You might take a personality test before you choose a tracker. One that understands that you are a social butterfly and you need social support. You need that competitive edge with your friends. Or maybe like me, you're not a fan of competition and you would respond better to a fitness tracker that lights up in soothing colors, indicating it's lovely outside. The sun is about to set and right now would be the perfect time to take a 20-minute walk. And maybe for Paul, an app would have texted him. And... Your wife is having twins? I'm putting a session on the calendar for next week with a personal trainer. You'll need your stamina. Is it kind of infantilizing? Yes. Is putting all our energy into building new tools and tracking ourselves maybe distracting us from actually looking at the big picture and fixing the way that we produce, sell, and consume food locally and globally? Probably. So maybe the next time you look at your numbers on the scale or the steps that you walk today, think about Benjamin Franklin and try to feel good and healthy, not just for yourself, but for everyone around you. It might be the only ethical and sane way to make the most of quantifying our bodies and ourselves. For some of us, anyway. Those of you who, like, just use them and then you do your thing and then you're done with them. Lucky you. Keep, keep going. Next week, Note to Self kicks off 2017 with a brand new episode. Plus, get ready for our big project. It's coming this month. And if you are ready to finally take the mystery out of digital privacy... And maybe get some control over your identity online and off. Sign up right now. It's at privacyparadox.org. There's a little box. Type in your email. We will protect it with our own privacy measures. And we will be in touch. The Note to Self team is Kat Aaron, Jen Poyant, Jenna Cagle, and Joe Plord. Many thanks to Megan Kunane and Ariana Tobin for their help this week. I'm Anoush Samarodi. Puyachaka. And they were fascinating. Wait. And they were fascinating. Okay, get off your phone because I'm not doing this again. Three, two, one. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you just said that. <laughs>